I'm in this place now where I'm learning that it's okay to express disappointment in God. I am so deeply disappointed in God right now. Hi, Internet. Welcome to episode 13 of Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. I'm an award-winning novelist, a celebrated humorist, and as of this recording, I can honestly claim to be a best-selling author by, like, the most technical definition of the phrase best-selling author. Um, I have a new book coming out that I'll talk a little bit more about at the end of the show, but um, it's called Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Confused and Uncomfortable. Um, And it won't be out till August of 2020, but actually, uh, based on pre-orders alone, it's already spent a little bit of time on one of Amazon's best-selling lists. It cracked the top 100 for religious humor. Um, So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, Not a New York Times bestselling author yet, but technically a bestselling author. So that is going on the old resume for sure. Anyway, that's not really related to this particular episode of the podcast in any way. What this episode of the show is about is about a very old friend of mine uh, named Calvin Moore, who I hadn't spoken to in almost a decade. Um, He contacted me out of the blue a few weeks ago and said, hey, can I be on your podcast? I've got something really important I need to say about my loss of faith. Um, So this is a very serious conversation and I think a very important one. Um, I really just kind of want to let the conversation speak for itself. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and flip you over to Calvin. I will see you on the other side of the conversation. Welcome to episode 13 of Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington, and this is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big things. Um, Reason for that being that there is ample reason in the news on your Facebook feed to think that no one ever changes their mind, even when given good reason to do so. But it does happen from time to time. We've all seen it happen. So this is my show. It's about 13% research project, 87% therapy for me. I'm sitting here with a blast from my past, Calvin Moore. Say hi, Calvin. Hey, Luke. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Let me tell you, listeners, a little bit about Calvin. This has been an interesting uh, few days for me because uh, way back in the day, about 10 years ago. um, Has it been that long? I think so. I think it was like, I think it was 2009, 2010. Okay. Um, I think so. I mean, maybe 2011. I don't know. It's been almost a decade. There was a time, though, when I, on and off, I was writing for a website called The Christian Manifesto, which, in retrospect, seems like the most 2000s website name ever. Oh, absolutely. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was, 
it was a great little website where um, Christian hipsters reviewed media. I used to write movie reviews for um, Calvin was my editor there. And then I kind of stopped. And at some point, Calvin unfriended me on Facebook, which <laughs> I didn't take it personally. Um, but um, and then just out of nowhere, a couple of days ago, Calvin refriended me, messaged me, said, hey, man, remember me? I lost my Christian faith and I would love to be on your show. <laughs> Is that an accurate summary of, of, of what happened? Somewhat. I've been kind of chewing on how to answer some of the questions that I know you tend to ask on, on this show. Um, close. And we'll get that. Yeah, it, it's so interesting. You, you mentioned the name of that, uh, of the website, the Christian manifesto looking back on it, like you said, yeah, such a two thousands name, but now, really looking back on it, I I understand why I got so many emails from different publishers and record labels that were like, okay, what are you about? Because manifestos <laughs> tend to be like things that uh, militia groups have. <laughs> right, right. So uh, I, I now understand the uh, skeptical emails. When I first encountered it, I was like, is it a, just a spoof of the Communist Manifesto? Is it a reference to the Francis Schaeffer book? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, well, it, was, it did take its name from, from Francis Schaeffer. But yeah, it was. It's one of those things where you're like, "Oh yeah, is this a spoof?" You're like, "Oh, oh no, oh no, he's serious. He's serious." <laughs> <laughs> but those were good times, though. They were they were good times, and and we we got uh, we got a lot of uh, we made a lot of good relationships, uh, even though uh, that's gone to the wayside. And and I don't necessarily share uh, the views that I did back then. Uh, it, it was, it was still was a, it was a fun run. I, I ran that thing for a decade. Yeah. Yeah. Were you, were you the founder there then or? I founder. I started, I, I literally, I started, I started it in college as a means of getting free textbooks because <laughs> to a Christian college. And so they would assign us different books, uh, some textbooks, and then some were just kind of popular culture Christian books. And I didn't want to have to pay any more than I had to for books. And so I ended up getting a crap ton of, uh, of free books for, uh, for my college education, which was great. So you would just like write publishers and be like, will you send me books to review or, or is that? Send me this book and I'll review And I was honest, I did review the book, but I had an ulterior I didn't want to pay for another textbook. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best thing I've ever, I had no idea that was what was behind the site. Man, yeah, I, I was totally gaming the system. It was great. I, some people, it seems like some people are just really good at using the internet to get free stuff. And I have never been one of those people. Oh yeah. I, I, get, man. I, I can show you all the tricks. I can show you all the tricks. Hashtag life goals. Yeah. Man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the site hasn't been around for a while. And sometimes, uh, I used to live with my mom for a little bit after college, and so that became the address for stuff. Um, sometimes my mom will call me and say, "Hey, you got a free book?" I'm like, "Are they? Are people sending <laughs> stuff?" I haven't done that since good uh, 2016, 2000, maybe early 2017. So it's just kind of interesting. Still getting stuff. Wow, that's wild. Occasionally, I still get invites to like screenings of like of movies for critics from back when I was a film critic, but, and I haven't honestly probably haven't written an, a real film review in several years at 
at least. Gotcha. Whatever. Um, <laughs> so that's the closest I've ever gotten to getting free stuff. Yeah. So I assume what we like, I, I thought it might be kind of fun to go into this blind, but I assume what we're talking about is your loss of faith or however you want to put it. Um, am I on the right track there? <laughs> yeah. And I've listened to a few of your episodes. Loss of faith is how I think some people would characterize it. Uh-huh. Um, probably those within white evangelical spaces. And for, and for your listeners, just some, some context, I'm an African-American male. Um, who grew up in predominantly white evangelical spaces. I guess you could just say grew up in evangelical spaces, and most people are going to know that that's white. Um, But uh, I grew up predominantly in in white evangelical spaces, and I don't know that uh, I've had a loss of faith in the traditional sense of the word uh, or or the uh, traditional sense of the, the term or the idea or what most people think. But if you were to talk to a white evangelical, dyed in the wool, John Piper reader, John MacArthur, (laughs) um, they would probably say, "Okay, Calvin is Calvin's no longer a Christian. And I don't know Mm. that that's necessarily accurate in terms (laughs) of what's in my head, but I would Mm. say I've gone more from being staunch evangelical Christian to almost ambivalent about faith. And mm. and that's the that's the group that most people aren't prepared for. Like I, you know, I studied a lot of apologetics, right? Which is just a reasonable defense for the Christian faith. Like here's the answers mm. uh, for everything, you know, okay, if a, if a person just lacks the information they've got an informational roadblock, so now we give them the information. If a person is is willful, we we've got these ways of talking to people who are willful, willfully blocked. And I'm just at a point where I'm like, I just I don't care, and <laughs> I don't think there's um I don't think there's anything in the Christian arsenal that I've come across, evangelical specifically the evangelical Christian arsenal uh, that I've come across that can deal with someone who who says. Yeah, cool. All that sounds true and right. Um, I don't care, though. And I think maybe, and, and we can get into this deeper, I think a lot of it comes from the age-old saying, um, I don't know if it's an age-old saying, but the saying, um, <laughs> people don't uh, care how much you know until they know how much you care. Hmm. And I think I saw uh, a lot of Christians, evangelical Christians, show their... Uh, their true colors in the last decade, I would, I've seen a, uh, a major shift that has made me step back from so much of what that entails. So Uh have I lost my faith? And I mean, did people showing their true colors all of a sudden make me question things like the resurrection I I don't know so much on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It made me question, you know, the Trinity, you know, Trinitarian theology. What makes someone Christian or not? Um, no, I, I don't know on that. Those aren't the things that I'm questioning. It's more so these are the people. This is the tribe that taught me what it means to believe, mm-hmm. right? Um, what is true, what is real, what is honest, what is beautiful, and especially what is moral. 
I was mm-hmm. taught so much about what is morality by a particular group of people. And I've seen that almost wholesale abandoned or certain egregious things being excused in order for one's morality to be politically enforced. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, I think, uh, and, and that was well before the 2016 election, you know, sure. um, I've seen a lot, like I said, a lot of things in the last decade. Uh, I might be getting a little ahead of myself in in all this. But yeah, I I don't know that I have jettisoned my faith in the sense that I no longer believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died and rose again. But also, (laughs) um, I am ambivalent to practicing with people who say they believe it. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, I I think I'm tracking with you. Um, And this is something I've felt like I should probably get at head on on this show eventually. (laughs) Um, Because this show, you know, I mean, I started it back in the summer. And at first, it was just kind of like, okay, you know, I want to talk to people who've changed their minds, um, just to prove that people can change their minds. But at some point, um, it's kind of evolved into more just kind of chronicling, like the shifting ideological ground in America, like in a post-Trump world. Um, and I think a big part of that is the quote unquote ex-vangelical phenomenon, oh, yeah. um, which is not like, I, I, I'm not crazy about that word. It's, it's a stupid sounding word, just like Brexit. You say it and everybody's on board. They're tracking with you. Yeah. So cheap yeah, as you right. might be. It's like ex-evangelical. I'm not confused as to what you mean by that. Sure, sure. And I'm fine with like, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to dismiss the phenomenon. I'm just saying the word kind of bothers me. Yeah. Um, and I have, like, I feel like this show has kind of flirted with it. Like I've talked to a like a Baptist preacher who went Eastern Orthodox and I had, you know, on the episode um, 11, I had Benito Serino, who is an ex-evangelical, but we were, we were talking about something else, something only tangentially related, St. Nicholas. It's a good episode. Yeah. People should listen to it. Um, but I, I haven't had, I haven't done an episode that kind of tackles the phenomenon on like head on. Um, so yeah, this is going to be good. I think um, as far as my religious leanings go, I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that I'm probably not an evangelical and probably never have been. <laughs> um, okay. Like I, I was raised, I, I'm certainly not an evangelical in the narrow sense of the term, like what people think of when they say it, which usually means like quasi Baptist or Pentecostal, happy, clappy smoke machines and <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I was, I was raised um, Presbyterian. I eventually went Lutheran, which puts me in kind of what I would call more the confessional traditional magisterial Protestant camp. Um, and I like, I'm still, you know, I'm still Lutheran, but I'm definitely on the far, like quasi Anglo Catholic end of Lutheranism. So I, in general, tend to identify more with my Catholic friends, my Orthodox friends, my Anglican friends than, you know, my quote unquote evangelical friends. So, right. And, and I think that that's, um, probably a step further than where I am. So if we, if we take a step back to the whole being ambivalent thing, uh, I would say that, uh, you know, ha- okay, so some some background for me. I went to uh, I went to school for uh, religious studies, biblical studies. Uh, I wanted to be a pastor. 
hence why I was trying to get these books for free. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and went on to for a master's degree to get an MDiv. I did not complete that, mainly because I didn't like the school, uh, but did go on to get a, a master's of uh, missional leadership at my uh, my undergrad college as well, uh, Rochester, Rochester University in Rochester Hills, Michigan. And then um, went on to Biola University in La Mirada, California, uh, and uh, began, have not completed, don't know if I'm going to complete it, uh, but a degree in Christian apologetics, because that has always followed me in some way, shape, or form uh, through the formation of my faith. I've always been very cerebral, so I need answers. Um, Mm. uh, So, and And I don't know if I was doing that more to convince me or to make me feel superior winning arguments online with people I really didn't care about their salvation. I just <laughs> winning arguments. Um, and, I, and it's weird when you go to a school with a lot of people who are just like that. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you would argue about the <laughs> You're saying the same thing, but you like to argue. So, uh, you know, we get into a little nitty gritty and nuance and things like that. But all that to say, while I'm questioning the who, you know, the, the who I associate with, I don't know that what I've seen people do making me be ambivalent changes the way uh, if someone were to ask me, how, is, how should people interpret the Bible? I would still probably come from an evangelical perspective, mainly because I'm too ambivalent to study how Catholics would do it or how <laughs> do it or how Presbyterians sure. would do it. I just know how evangelical Christians pri- predominantly Baptist with a cool website and Pentecostals uh, would, uh, would do it, right? I don't know that I've jettisoned that stuff, but by being ambivalent about going to church on a Sunday or opening my Bible and reading it or fellowshipping with other Christians or anything like that, uh, the questions don't really come up. So I just don't care. <laughs> so that's kind of where I find myself. The, the thing is, people, especially of evangelical stripe, it's it's interesting because when I say I don't care, I, I get a few responses. The main one is Calvin. It's not that you don't care; it's that you care so much. <laughs> line. I mean, I get what they're getting at. It's like, okay, you're so disappointed. You believed it so deeply that when you saw people seemingly abandon their faith for political power or whatever it is, it caused something to come loose in your mind, and you couldn't make sense of that. I get that perspective. I, I don't. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with it. Uh, the other side of it is I've never really cared, honestly, about a lot of the things that I was told I needed to care about. Like what specifically? Yeah. Okay. So like like gay marriage, right? I I don't care if two gay guys get married. There is not a bone in my body that cares uh, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a little bit stronger feelings on things like abortion. I believe that life matters and there are some deep philosophical conversations we can have around that. But ultimately, if someone chooses to, if a woman chooses to have an abortion, um, I, I don't think it's the be all end all for her life. I don't necessarily think that person's going to be traumatized forever. I don't think that it's the most egregious sin. I don't believe that it's my duty to be picketing, you know, outside of a, you know, abortion clinic to try to change their mind. I just don't. I don't care about these things 
that deeply. I feel that there are much bigger fish to fry in the world, especially being a black person in America. Guess what? Mm. Abortion and homosexuality are very low on the totem pole for black people in America at the, mm-hmm. it, it just is. And so, but if we go back to the whole gay marriage thing, I'm like, I don't, the only reason I quote unquote cared is because the Bible told me it was wrong. And mm-hmm. more so than the Bible telling me that it was wrong was the evangelical culture definitely told me that it was wrong, not just from the pulpit, but in private one-on-one conversations and small group conversations and arguing from the pulpit for how people should vote without officially arguing how people should vote, you know, that, that political series would come up. I don't, I don't know if you ever went to like, you know, like you said, evangelical smoke machine type churches every now and again, <laughs> when there's a voting season, you know, there's, there's that quasi political message about, mm. you know, who you should vote for and how, uh, from the pulpit without losing their, uh, you know, their 501c3 status. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was definitely, that was definitely never my experience, uh, you know, which is why I'm, I've come around to, oh, I guess I'm not evangelical. <laughs> like, yeah. um, I mean, when I, when I was growing up, it was like, you know, I'm a relatively theologically conservative Protestant. I guess that makes me evangelical by default. And then I, you know, I grow up and I get on the internet and I see people talking about evangelicalism and like evangelicalism is like this and it's like this and it's like this. And I'm like, okay, I guess I've never experienced evangelicalism. Like apparently I'm not evangelical. Okay. Well, and certainly after, uh, the last few elections, like I have no desire to associate myself with evangelical with the word evangelical anyway. So right, and 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 that I'm happy not to. <laughs> and that's probably the the hardest part of things is the desire to step away from the evangelical moniker is almost entirely about politics, uh-huh. which lets you know and just kind of goes to show that that is more what evangelicals are known for than for their faith. If someone was like, hey, look, I don't like evangelicals because they're out here preaching Jesus all the time, and they're out here helping the homeless all the time, and I feel like you should just give bread instead of, hey, we're going to give you bread, but but you got to listen to us give this gospel presentation first. Uh, or hey, you know what? Uh, you know, just any no, nothing really has to do with the faith, if if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't sure. agree with them believing that Jesus is the only way. That's never been the main arguments that I've heard. I mean, yeah, people mm-hmm. some people don't like the exclusivity of Christianity. Um, it just is what it is. It's a religion. That's how that's how world right. really work. They tend to be exclusive. Islam is exclusive. Judaism mm-hmm. is exclusive. Christianity is exclusive. A number of other religions uh, are, and some aren't. But either way, uh, they all come with stipulations and beliefs, right? And so, most of what I've seen of people stepping back from evangelicalism or characterizing evangelicalism has nothing to do with its theology and everything to do with its grasp for political power. And I, I think that that's very telling, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, I, I feel like the word, I, I hear. I feel like I hear the word evangelical used in almost three different ways. Like one of which is a theological categorization, which is, you know, the faith in Jesus is the way to salvation. 
uh, faith alone, et cetera. And that's, I feel like I'm hearing that less and less, <laughs> you know, and, and then yeah. there's, I, you know, obviously the political category, which seems to have only minimal overlap <laughs> in terms of who's, who's, uh, practicing what, um, well, and then like nine, nine times out of 10, like it's more of a cultural categorization, um, than anything. And it's, it always seems like when people talk about evangelical culture, it always seems like they're talking about like white Southern culture, you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I'm a Northerner, you're a Northerner, you're not even white. So <laughs> it also gets tough when I think like, like I said earlier, and, and like you just mentioned again, um, I'm, I'm not even white. I'm not even yeah. And so that's where you get some crazy overlap as as a black person in America and a black person in evangelical spaces. There are some great books uh, that have been written by you know fantastic uh, authors within the Christian sphere. Um, I can't remember their names, but I do remember the names of their books. Uh, there's one book called Reconciliation Blues. Uh, one is uh, I'm Still Here by Austin Channing Brown, uh, where it talks about being black in white evangelical spaces which comes mm. with a whole other set of questions and problems. So in the wake of, you know, before before you even had Trump as president, you were starting to see, uh, I don't know if it was necessarily an uptick, but you were definitely seeing more coverage because you have 24 mm. news cycle and social media now. Uh, but you were starting to see more coverage of black people, generally unarmed black people being shot by by the police, right? Sure. Um, Regardless of whether that black person did something criminal or not, having someone shot to death is uh, not not generally looked upon highly, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We have jails for a reason. You know, cops don't get to execute people uh, unless their lives are actually in danger. But a lot of people feel like their lives are in danger and get to shoot and kill black people and then are exonerated for it. Right. Uh, so we've seen this over and over and over again, even I mean, within the black community, it like it almost re traumatizes us. Um, but we almost feel hopeless. So like in um, I guess I'll, I'll go back to the Old Testament where uh, Aaron, you know, Moses brother is like, what what's God done for us? Right. You're talking to God. What's this guy done for us ever? Mm-hmm. Right. So he's almost mm-hmm. hopeless. And I feel like black people in a way in this country when it comes to the next story, the inevitable next story of, you know, white police violence against black bodies, uh, black and brown bodies in this country, there's almost a hopelessness. Like we know what's going to happen now. That cop is going to get death duty, then they're going to go on trial and they're ultimately going to be exonerated. That's just what's going to happen. And and even in the spate of uh, cases where people uh, were convicted, like the, the woman who killed the guy in his own apartment, she got like what ten years, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and meanwhile you got people with non-violent drug offenses who are serving much longer sentences than that uh, right now. And so uh, I think when you cross that over with white evangelical culture, you've got a group of people who believe in personal responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's tantamount to both republicanism and white evangelical culture. But you've got a culture that says, we believe in God. We believe in a specific God uh, who sent his son to die for our sins. We believe that this God binds up the wounds of those who are hurting. And mm-hmm. 
hear black people are in these spaces saying, this is hurting. This Mm -hmm. is terrible. And you've got groups like the Southern Baptist Convention saying, yeah, we're not going to even apologize for slavery. Right. Mm -hmm. Or, hey, you know, Mm -hmm. we're we're not going to come alongside you and weep with those who weep and mourn with Mm -hmm. those who mourn. It's almost like there's a rape culture within evangelical culture that says, well, what was she wearing? Mm-hmm. What was he doing that made the cop shoot him five times sitting in the passenger mm-hmm. seat of his car? What was this little sure. boy doing in the park playing with a toy gun? What, so you're, you're right, what, seven, eight years old, something like that? And, and a cop mm-hmm. within two seconds, right? And so when black people say, hey, this hurts, this is terrible, we are fearful, mm-hmm. we are scared, we are wounded. And we're in this community that says that it binds up the wounds of those who are hurting and scared and and wounded. And that's not there. That's not happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's another thing that gives me a great deal of ambivalence about evangelical culture at large, white evangelical culture at large. I'm like, look, you say one thing and you do another. E- even if you mm-hmm. even if you took like Trump out of the running. Right, you know, oh, watching, sure. yeah. watching a wholesale abandonment of all the morals that you said you believed in back when President Clinton was caught, you know, having sex in the Oval Office with uh, with Monica Lewinsky, all that's abandoned mm-hmm. so that you could vote for uh, for Donald Trump. Even if you took that out of the equation, just as a black person in America right now in these white evangelical evangelical spaces, that's enough to make me go, you don't care. I don't care. I, I just, I can't. I can't sure. keep caring for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. And I need, I need to walk away from this because this is supposed to be a place of healing, um, you know, a hospital for, you know, for the sick. And I'm walking in here, and and you're you're you've got a syringe full of poison. That's mm-hmm. I, it doesn't compute. If that makes any sense. Should we maybe? I feel like. <laughs> Having had the sermon, I feel like I I want to kind of just try to tell your story in order a little more, you know, because yeah. um, that is that is kind of what the show's about. Is it's you know, let's tell these people's story. Um, so yeah, I mean, I want to know kind of where you started church wise. Um, you, you you mentioned you started in kind of a white evangelical space. Um, your site's named after Francis Schaeffer's book. Your name is Calvin. Are you coming from a reform background or? (laughs) Uh, no, I am not from a reform background. Uh, there was of course a time in, uh, uh, early 2000, well, say mid 2000s where I was enamored with it because uh, a guy by the name of Mark Driscoll was super popular and John. Oh yeah, that guy. Really popular. (laughs) Uh, that so, didn't end well. <laughs> well, but I will tell you, of all the people who I've seen abuse faith, uh, because I was so far removed from what whatever was going on in Seattle, uh, I look at I still mm-hmm. look at Mark and say he was really formative for my faith. I like I grew up a lot reading mm-hmm. his, his material, um, so he's not one of those sure. people that I was disappointed in the way that the people in his area who were actually abused by him were disappointed. If that makes sense, because I was refu- I was removed from it. So I didn't experience that as much, but I I actually grew up in two spaces. Um, I grew up in black evangelical, uh, Pentecostal culture, and I grew up in white 
Baptist evangelical cultures. So something okay. something you should know is uh, pretty much to this day, most black Pentecostal churches are very bad at um, youth ministry. Okay. There, there's, nothing, there's nothing for teens. Uh, if you ever go to a, a, a black Pentecostal church, you'll generally see uh, the the kids sitting in church with their parents. There's nothing separate for them. Um, okay. And so we're getting these sermons written for adults, uh, and we're just cutting up because none of it makes any sense to us. So we're just acting up in church and, um, <laughs> and things like that. So on Wednesdays, my mother would have us go to a program called Awana, uh, which was associated with Baptist churches. And so we would go to these, basically these boys and these Christian boys and girls clubs during the middle of the week. And so that was my first foray into uh, a white evangelical spaces. Uh, and another reason my mom did it was not just because the church was really bad at youth ministry, but my dad was very much a man who goes to work, comes home, goes to bed, wakes up, goes to work, comes home, goes to bed. So he didn't really pour into our life like our mom did. And so my mom wanted to make sure that her sons uh, and her daughter had male role models, not just a male role model who will get up and go to work. Because I look at my dad and I'm going, a lot of guys aren't doing that. My mom and dad are still married years later. I love that my dad has selflessly put himself you know, on the chopping block for his family all these years and continues to do so for my mom. Um, but he was not an affectionate man and still is mm-hmm. not an affectionate man. He's getting better in his old age. But because of that, we were sent to uh, Awana programs, this Boys and Girls Club, and there were a lot of Christian men who started pouring into this young, impressionable black little kid's life. I ended up going to like these camps and things like that. It was a lot of fun. And I don't want to undo my childhood because I, I look at it fondly. Um, I didn't necessarily see ways in which my blackness was being used to make someone feel better about themselves and about their faith and how they were walking it out. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I've grown up in in both spaces. Sundays were a wrap, and they still are. Sundays are a wrap for black church. There's no (laughs) Catholics to to big boy. Um, That's Jesus's day. You're in church forever. (laughs) You you go to church, and then you leave, and you go to work on Monday morning. That's pretty much Mm. what it's like. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, Wednesday nights were, were a really great integral spot for me uh, as a kid. But that was how I became associated with white evangelical culture to begin with. So you're um, raised Pentecostal, going to Baptist Awana. Is this, um, you're in Detroit now. Are you, were you raised, born and raised in Detroit? Or? I was not born and raised in Detroit. My dad was military. Um, but, you okay. know, I'm, I'm 40 now. I've been here. Tw- yeah. I've been here 26 years. So saying I'm not from Detroit is really just kind of a misnomer at this point. I don't really. Sure. I mean, remember the other places that I've lived, but Detroit is home. Yeah. You know, most of my formative years, in terms of adult thinking about my faith, have been. Here. Mm-hmm. My childhood was spent all over because my dad was military. But ultimately, I would say, yeah, I'm from Detroit. I should just tell people I'm from Detroit at this point. So, um, yeah. So you get out of high school and you go, you go, um, straight to. Do you say Bible college or is that? Yeah, I, well, I, I took a gap year and then uh, went okay. to Bible college and uh, had a great first semester and then uh, 
There is this little chat program called AIM. Some people may remember it. Some people may not. But uh, <laughs> I met a young lady, and uh, this is back before online dating was a thing. And I decided to leave college and make the worst mistake of my life. <laughs> um, but hey, I, I have a wonderful daughter because of it. Um, and uh, so met a, met a lady, fell in love, got married. Marriage didn't last, but we got a, a beautiful daughter uh, to, together. She's great. Um, but uh, all during this time, uh, even during you know the time of my divorce, I'm working in a youth group down the street from my house. I uh, worked in a youth group for about seven years, started going to Bible college uh, while I was working in that youth group, um, dropped out. By the time uh, my divorce happened, I decided to go back to school. And that's when I ended up at Rochester University. Mm. I was there for five years, uh, did a degree in Christian ministry and a degree in history. And then I already kind of informed you about the master's degrees that I went on for. So that's kind of right, right. you know everything in and around at least my uh, my background in education and in church history. Okay, so when you get done with school, then what? Um, well, along the way, planted a few churches. I ended up um, while I was in college, there was this uh, there was this college ministry, and that's another thing that a lot of churches, even white evangelical churches, don't do well. Our college ministry. Mm-hmm. So there was this college ministry down the street from my school that I started going to, and. Uh, <laughs> Here's a here's a fun story around that. So I started going to this college ministry, and it generally drew college students from all sorts of different area churches that also did not have college ministries. So it was kind of made out of a like half the people that went to this college ministry went to the church itself, and the other half came from you know you know seventeen to twenty different churches in the area. So the first night I'm there, I had actually emailed the pastor because I was doing this program at my school and it was suggested that he be a panelist. And so I, I reached out to him, I emailed him and we had never met before. And I said, Hey, on, uh, on Sunday night, I'm going to come and give you a face to go with the name. And he was like, sweet, that, that would be great. So I, I get there a little bit late and it's one of those moody, smoky rooms. It's all dark. Cause you know, <laughs> You know, college ministry, it is what it is. And so, um, <laughs> but it was also represent your college night. And normally I'm sitting towards the front, but I got there late. And so now I'm sitting more towards the back. And he's in some series about um, the disciples. And he asked about uh, one of the, the, I can't remember who it was, the twin. And he said, this guy's name, do you know what it was? And nobody answered the question. And I raised my hand and I said, Didymus. But uh, he was like, holy crap, who, who said that? Who said Didymus? And I raised my hand and he looks back through the darkness, puts his hand over his eyes. He goes, I, I can't see you. What? Who, what, what? And I, I stand up. It's still dark. And he goes, <laughs> he goes, dude, did you paint your face? Now, I <laughs> represent your college night. So he thinks I've painted my face to represent. Okay. All right. <laughs> but I have not painted my face. I just happen to be black. But the people around me are like, oh, crap. Oh, crap. And his wife happens to be sitting in the row in front of me. And I didn't know it was his wife at the time. And she starts giving him this, you know, hand across the neck, you know, cut it out, stop, you know, do not proceed. Wow. Not pass go. But he just keeps digging in. He's like, no, man. I mean, dude, great, great on you for representing your college. What school do you go to? You oh, totally painted your face. And... I step into the light and he goes, Oh, oh my God. I am so sorry. 
Hey, everybody, tonight's my last night as your pastor. Uh, if you guys remember <laughs> about my ministry, please don't let it be this. Um, and so he ends up getting through the whole sermon, and at the end, he makes a beeline straight for me. And uh, he says, oh, my God, I am so sorry. Uh, I said, you know, what's funny is uh, I'm Calvin Moore. I'm that guy who emailed you who said I'd come to give you a face to go with the name, and now you'll never forget it. He's like, you've got <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Now, the reason I bring this story up, this guy's name is Cliff. Uh, he was the pastor of uh, – that college ministry for a number of years. Uh, I graduate out of college. I end up going to uh, Western Michigan, but I keep coming back on Sunday nights just to hang out. Three hour drive, but he calls me to his office one night before uh, before this uh, college ministry, and he, he sits me down. and He says, "Hey, you know, at this point, we've we've developed a great rapport, a great relationship. We've been meeting for a few years, one at this point now." And he said, "Hey, I just want you to know that uh, I'm I'm leaving this ministry here," uh, and my heart just sank. Mm-hmm. And he said, but uh, I want I want to let you know what's going on. I feel like God is calling me to move to downtown Detroit and to start a church, to to start uh, a campus of of this larger church that we're a part of, and I'd like you to be a part of that. And so that's what I did. Um, as I said earlier, I ended up not liking that uh, the program I was in out in West Michigan, so I moved back to southeastern Michigan and uh, got a job working for a. A multinational corporation. It uh, started paying my bills. I was able to move out of my mom's house and I ended up uh, getting a car and moving to a studio apartment in downtown Detroit and helped plant this, uh, this church. Uh, but you know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was with the exception of me, uh, it was essentially a bunch of white people moving to the city um, to, <laughs> I guess, you know, preach the gospel, but it was still, it was white people moving into the blackest city in America. Detroit mm-hmm. is a African-American city by population in the United States. Uh, And they moved into a cushier area, an up-and-coming area. And I get that in terms Mm -hmm. of church planting. You want to go where the money is, honestly, or your church won't survive. That's just how it is. But um, I did help plant the church, but I also started to feel like we might be part of the problem. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. we are moving into an area that is gentrifying. We're not really connecting with the other churches that have been here for years. And here we are coming in with this almost kind of white savior mentality, mm-hmm. which didn't uh, didn't fit well. And all that was kind of coming to a head as well when all the, the election stuff was going on and people just wholesale abandoning their faith in, in a grab for political power. So mm-hmm. long story about Cliff to, to let you know, yeah, after college, I was involved in a church plant uh, downtown. While I was in college, I was also involved with a few other church plants as well, uh, some that survived and some that did not. Um, but uh, the the church in downtown Detroit still is thriving. They're still they're still doing well. They're moving into a second location at this point. Uh, but I had, to, I had to walk away personally. And this was... Um what, just a couple of years ago for you then that you walked away or? Yeah. So we're, we're in 2019. I, w- I would say that, uh, let's see, how long have I been married to my wife, Jen? Now we've been married, uh, three years, just over three years. So I would say about four, four and a half years. It, it was about a year, a year and a half into the church plant, uh, being downtown that I walked away from pretty much all of it. And the weird thing is that didn't hurt me. Right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a walk away from a church, like a local church. That local church didn't hurt me. There was there was no abuse. Mm-hmm. There was nothing like that. Um, it's just all all this everything that was going on in the culture. And uh, there was a police shooting that happened, and the 
senior pastor of the main campus of our church said, you know, hey, we need to pray for the families of, of these police officers. And it was a total missed opportunity because here you are with a lot of black people in your church who are hurting mm-hmm. and you say, pray for the police officers. Not that you shouldn't pray for the police officers. Yeah. You should. Absolutely. Right. Sure. Um, sure. You want to pray for people who are putting their lives on the line to protect us. But also in this case, um, they're the ones who shot and killed an innocent person. Uh, and so just missed opportunities like that, just kind of tone deaf things happening. Uh, not an, uh, not an abusive thing, just, Hey, we're, we're in these spaces, but we don't necessarily speak the language of this space or understand what triggers people in these spaces or what pains they have to help them bind up those wounds. When you, when you say, I, you know, I got to walk away from this, is this just you stop going, you just kind of drift away, or is there like a, a moment when, when you say to them, you know, I'm, I'm done here, I'm leaving? It was a slow drift. And it was hard because, again, that local church hadn't hurt me. And I hadn't necessarily formulated my ideas about the possible damage that the church was doing to the community when I was leaving. Those weren't the reasons I was leaving. That perspective yeah. came later, right? Um, so I don't want mm-hmm. it to seem like mm-hmm. I, I was thinking this all along and I finally just couldn't deal and I had to go. No, I mean, I, I got that perspective later <laughs> on. Um, yeah. but no, I, uh, I did leave pretty much evangelical Christianity, uh, which meant leaving this, this church as well. When things kind of hit the fan with, with 2016, honestly, okay. I, was, I was seeing things again, the police shootings during the Obama administration, uh, or during the time when Obama was president, those were happening then. They they were starting to go, you know, uptick when Trump became president as well. But just the rhetoric mm-hmm. that was coming out of out of this person's mouth and the excuses that were being made by the people who taught me what it means to follow Christ, to love others, to serve others, uh, to let mm-hmm. no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth. These things like this, right? And so it, it got to this point where my my thought was, do you believe what you say you believe because your faith dictates that to you? Or do you say you believe what you believe because it aligns with a political viewpoint? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that there is, most people don't make that distinction or that bifurcation, um, even when you ask them that. Mm-hmm. But you can, you could see it so starkly. Um, case in point, back in mm-hmm. back when President Clinton was caught having sex in the Oval Office with uh, Monica Lewinsky, uh, I remember right. James Robson of Focus on the Family saying he is disqualified on moral grounds. Like, okay, and I believed that. I believed yeah. that wholeheartedly. Yeah. Back then. Well, fast forward to 2016, 2015, uh, Trump's running for president is inaugurated in 2016, right? And um, James Dobson is on record, on camera, saying, well, you know, we're not voting for a pastor in chief in in regard to Donald Trump. And Mm -hmm. at this point, we have Donald Trump saying things like, you know, grab him by uh, the female genital area. Um, You can do anything, right? Him saying, you know, you know, rough that person up. I'll pay for uh, your your lawyer bills. You know, talking about beating up black people at his at his rallies, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, calling Mexican uh, rapists and murderers, uh, and then becoming president and continuing 
with that kind of rhetoric where he demonizes the caravan uh, coming to the United States, which, of course, after midterm elections, this whole demonized caravan all of a sudden just disappeared. Nobody was talking about it anymore. Trump wasn't talking about it anymore. Um, he tried to get yeah. votes and lost miserably. But um, think you know things along those lines have been dismissed out of hand by evangelical Christians who, if it were 1994 or even 2008. Like Obama could not have gotten away with any of this stuff because he's a Democrat and also because he's black. He, just, he wouldn't. And so I think that that was hard for me to see these people who taught me this is what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be moral, to make moral decisions in this world, to abandon that in hopes of getting legislation passed, to abandon that in hopes of having uh, Supreme Court justices, conservative Supreme Court justices, to abandon that to have a president in the White House who, you know, affirms prayer in schools. I, I what, whatever. It, it's almost like Christians were putting faith in Christendom or mm-hmm. into an earthly political system more than they were into a heavenly one, and, and that was that caused a full-on tilt for me. All the other stuff, notwithstanding of, you know, feeling like I'm a black person in white evangelical spaces, I've always kind of felt that. But um, there was a full on tilt because I'd never seen wholesale abandonment of what you say you believe in a grasp for political power. I'd never seen it before. I'd never experienced it before. And so Mm -hmm. now I'm just at this point where I'm like, well, if you guys don't care, I mean, you say you do, but your actions Mm -hmm. clearly say that you don't. Well, then I then I don't either. I don't have to. I just, I don't have enough time in my day to say that I care about all this stuff when you don't really care either. You don't really care. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, it's, that's the, that's the long and that's the long and short of it. Um, Mm -hmm. But I feel like I'm, uh, I feel like I'm talking in circles here. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm jiving with what you're saying. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, I want to put a, a cap on this, I guess. Where would you say this leaves you then? Like, I know you you said at the beginning of the show you just you're apathetic you don't care um, which to me sounds like quasi agnosticism or are you not quite there yet are you not willing to to put to put that label on yourself yet or where 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 would you say you really are in terms of what you believe now I guess where I would say that I am is I would say that I'm I would not say that I'm atheist I would not say that I'm necessarily agnostic I think that I am um, I'm very particular about that word ambivalent mm-hmm. um, primarily because uh, I don't know what to do with this part of me that believes certain things are true right mm-hmm. uh, I didn't again like I said at the beginning I didn't all of a sudden jettison the belief that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. I didn't, I didn't sure. jettison that idea, but what does that mean? Does it mean what I was told it, it means? Are they a broken clock? Like a broken clock is right twice a day, that kind of deal. Like they, they got their politics egregiously wrong, but their theology actually was right. Like, I don't, I don't know what mm-hmm. to do at this point. So in a way I'm, I'm ambivalent. I'm, I feel like I'm resting in a way, mm-hmm. I'm finding other sacred spaces. My wife and I do an event uh, called the Dinner Detroit every every other Sunday. We have people into mm-hmm. our house 
from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds um, to break bread. Like, hey, you know what? You're Republican. You're Democrat. You're uh, you're agnostic. You're atheist. You're religious. You're gay. You're straight. We don't all agree on all these different things, but we all love tacos, right? So <laughs> we get together and we, we break bread together um, over a common table. And so I've kind of replaced the community of church with these uh, with these dinners. So there are certain things that I still value. I value community. Um, I just don't necessarily value the religious community that I don't know is going to bind up my wounds when I'm hurting. I know that I would be there mm-hmm. to bind the wounds of others who are hurting, but I have I have not seen it go the other way when it comes to this intersection of race and faith in the United States at this point. Um, and again, that's not saying that individual churches don't do well. It's just, I think the ideology that people carry into these white evangelical spaces with them, uh, which I think informs their faith more than their faith informs their, their life and their actions. So it, it leaves me, it leaves me ambivalent. It leaves me just resting, I guess. Yeah. I'll tell you, I can tell you one way I've seen it expressed and you can tell me if you agree or disagree with this, which is that, you know, the Bible as a, as a whole is concerned both with personal morality and with systemic injustice, but white Christians tend to really, really gravitate toward the personal morality stuff because, uh, you know, obviously when you're in power, you don't want to think about uh, the systems that put you in power, right? Which which means that any any um, casual nod uh, towards reconciliation, quote unquote reconciliation, is almost doomed to fail from the start because it it's it doesn't deal with the deep differences between well the, the differences in history between white and black American Christianity. Um, it just starts from a place of, well, we all love Jesus, but it doesn't, it, it, it's not prepared to deal with the f- fact that we look at the world so differently and understand the gospel so differently. Right. And you're bringing that, you know, yeah, you're bringing all of that into each local expression of the faith. I think ultimately, if, if Christianity is true, uh, and I'm not ready to say that it's not, I'm just saying I don't care if it is. Um, uh, but uh, if if Christianity is true, it has to solve for this. Mm-hmm. It has to. Um, right. Its ultimate significance is it technically solves for everything spiritual, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, the problem with Christianity is that people are involved. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and they get it wrong and they have agendas and people. Uh, People, whether they want to admit it or not, don't want to give up uh, power and privilege, right? Um, right. Denying that you have it is a lot easier. And so, yeah, like you said, people want to start off, oh, well, we all have everything in common in Christ. Sure, that's true, right? There's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. But I just got to tell you, in my experience, the people who have made me feel that there is Jew and Greek, <laughs> there is slave and free, tend to be white evangelicals. So mm. for the most part, I am consistently reminded that I am other mm. until I bring up something like re- racial reconciliation. Then it's, oh, you know, we all need to be unified in Christ. Mm-hmm. Doing everything mm-hmm. to actively remind me that I am a guest of white evangelical culture. And then when we start mm. talking about 
racial reconciliation, then it's, why are you rocking the boat, Calvin? We don't need to deal with this. That's secular. You let the world deal with reconciliation. Like, no, hmm. Christ is reconciling all things to him, right? Isn't that what we believe? Right. Mm, yeah. Do uh, we just read it, Calvin? We don't really mean it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. So, yeah, if, if Christianity is true, it solves for it. I just don't know that people are willing to do the hard work of actually solving for it. Though I, I do know a few people. I've got a really good friend, Jennifer Kinney, who's a, a white lady who started a podcast called Speaking of Racism. Um, and she does dinners called D- uh, Food for Thought, where we talk about deep ideas, especially around race, racial reconciliation and reparations and things like that. Uh, and she's a Christian. She comes from a faith-based background. So there are some people doing good work out there. But mm-hmm. systemically, white evangelicalism, it's got some rot that needs to be excised. I'm not sure, sure. how that happens. Um, but it is for sure there. Well, and I do think it's probably somewhat telling that already in the New Testament, you see racial conflict within the church. Um, that, you know, even if theoretically Jesus reconciled all things to himself, it's like, eh, these problems are still around and they kind of always have been, which doesn't make me optimistic, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and here's the deal. I'm not hopeless. Yeah. I'm not hopeless, but I am a realist. I think there are a lot of people, especially within evangelical Christianity, who like to fuck it all up. And then when people walk away and become ex-evangelicals or become ambivalent or atheist or agnostic or go to another religion, a lot of black women specifically are mm-hmm. turning to witchcraft. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I've not done that. But um and, and black spirit, you know, African religion as well, turning back mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. When you when you do that, I think this group of people that screws up the whole program for everybody then turns around and says, well, Calvin, you're putting your faith in man and not in God. That's what your issue is. You're looking at the wrong person. Like, hold on, man. Y'all are teaching me about personal morality, personal responsibility. <laughs> you're talking about how the community of Jesus Christ is the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. And sometimes we're going to be the only Jesus that someone sees. And then when we screw it up, you say, whoa, 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 don't look at me. <laughs> look at him. Like, which one is it? Which, which one is it? Because it seems like you're enjoying screwing everything up and then blaming me for looking at the wrong person. Like, hey, dude. You're, you're like, you're saying you're a Christian uh, and you're cheating on your wife. I'm deeply disappointed. I'm probably going to walk away because this is unraveling a lot of stuff for me. Dude, dude, Calvin, God has forgiven me for my sin. You're looking at me and you're looking at the wrong person. You need to be looking at Jesus. It's not that the answer isn't theologically accurate. It mm-hmm. is. Um, but I don't know that in these moments of pain and suffering and sometimes even death that Theological accuracy is the most important thing in a moment, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's emotional intelligence that's that's necessary. I was uh, listening to a podcast dealing with death. Uh, it's uh, the Love Thy Neighbor podcast put out by Relevant Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here I am still listening to Christian stuff, right? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I don't like dealing with death. I just do not. Um, mm-hmm. It's my biggest fear in life. But the episode dealing about it was called when the gospel meets uh, the end of life. And one of the things that was said in this episode of the show was, you know, yeah, you know, in, 
in people's dying moments, in the end of life, or when people are mourning, theological accuracy is not necessarily what people are looking for. Now, that's not just, mm-hmm. saying, oh, you know, you're dying. Well, the Trinity's not real, right? <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. But not having all the T's crossed and the I's dotted, like somebody's got cancer. How do you solve for that? You know, like, mm-hmm. good God mm-hmm. allowing this thing to happen. I, I don't know what to do here. Um, ultimately, there's so much that's said about morality and personal responsibility by these people. And then when they mess up and you take that personally, um, you're told by those same people, look, you shouldn't be looking at me in the first place. Yeah. You just spent the last 10, 15, 20 years of my life saying, hey, I'm a follower of Christ. Uh, I want to be an example you know, look at me, follow me. I'm a leader. And then when you fail, I was apparently looking at the wrong person. Mm-hmm. It seems like a cop out. Aside from uh, how your beliefs have changed specifically, what would you say that you learned from this whole experience? I think I've learned firsthand now that people are going to disappoint you. And if God is real, if Christianity solves for this, that God's going to disappoint you too. Maybe that's one of the other things that having been out of it now, I hate how sanitized things are, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you read if you read the Psalms, there's a prayer that David prays. Like, you know, like in the 90s, it's like prayer of Jabez and Enlarge my territory. And <laughs> and I'm like, fine, whatever. Put it on a plate. That's cool. Um, I'll buy it. A- <laughs> um, but uh, you, you read the Psalms and David is like running from people and he's writing, dude, God, where are you? You know, where, where the heck are you right now? What's going on? Okay. When you do show up, here's what I'm going to need you to do. I'm going to need you to break the teeth of my enemies in their mouth. <laughs> I'm going to dash their babies against the rocks. Like these are the (laughs) prayers that are in the Bible, which is just kind of this interesting thing that gets sanitized. And I feel like I'm in this place now where I'm learning that it's okay to express disappointment in God. I am so deeply disappointed in God right now that I'm just like, look, if you don't care that all these people just abandoned you for a big orange pumpkin, I don't care either. Like I don't. <laughs> and then I'm also, I'm also meeting really good people. Like next week, I, I do a podcast myself, right? So I do a, a podcast called Leading Questions with Calvin mm-hmm. Moore. And next week we're doing a, an episode called uh, LGBT plus love, dating, marriage, and internal dynamics, internal community dynamics. And I've just got a bunch of gay friends coming on to talk about their life. And mm-hmm. I've grown up in a culture that says who they are is wrong mm-hmm. and that um, their culture is an abomination and what they're doing is going to bust hell wide open. And, you know, some have gone so far as to say, you know, hey, you know, they're child molesters and murderers and, you know, just the gay community is it's, it's just promiscuous. And that's why AIDS is rampant. These are all things that I was taught and some people still believe in those mm-hmm. cases. And so I think it's it's hard for me to square white evangelical expressions of Christianity with the real world, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I almost feel like 2016 showed that evangelicalism is impossible. Mm. It's impossible to continue to carry this standard. We all draw lines in the sand that are very crooked. That's not to say that that's right. But when you've got this group of people that says, hey, draw, we draw lines in the sand very, very, very straight. Emphasis on the straight, not hashtag not gay, right? You, you, you've got that with evangelical culture and 
then all of a sudden they're faced with the dilemma of we want to save the babies and we feel like these conservative justices are going to do that. They're going to legislate our morality and they're going to put Bibles in schools and prayer, you know, back in schools and, and they're going to close down abortion clinics and they're going to, you know, close off the, you know, the borders to, to people who are from another religion that we don't agree with. I think that that's been the difficult thing for me to square the more I think about evangelical culture. I think that it's an untenable position long term. Mm. It's, it's going to fall apart. And I think that's mm-hmm. what we're seeing. We're seeing it implode. And I'm not talking just about people's perspective of evangelicals. That's one thing. The wider culture is always going to hate Christianity. That's just the way that it is, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus said, you know, if you love me, people will hate you. That's the words of God. But I, I think that evangelicalism as a expression of Christianity is doomed to fail, at least the American mm-hmm. version of it. Let me ask you this because we've been dancing around it. Okay. I want to know if you if you think, you know, as someone who's been black in these white evangelical spaces, do you think there is hope for racial reconciliation within the broader American church? Like, is there a path to that or are you just... No. No. No, th- this side of the veil, okay? Uh, this uh-huh. side of the veil, no, I, I just don't. Um, okay. And that's not a fatalist view. Um, no, actually, no, technically that is, um, that is, <laughs> uh, I, I think it's a, a fool's errand that, that being said, doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Like, I don't sure. think any of us are ever going to realize it in our life. Now we might realize it in individual relationships systemically. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think it's solved. I, I, I do not think that it is. Um, but I still think that it is something that Christians should feel compelled to do. When the Southern Baptist Convention got into a huge brouhaha over apologizing for slavery um, or in their role in slavery, right? It wasn't Southern Baptist mm-hmm. part of slavery, but their role in slavery and their defense of slavery, um, it was very telling to see that whole thing implode. Like if, mm-hmm. if the most Christian of Christians in evangelicalism, let's just be honest, the Baptists wear the championship belt on that. Um, they're like the most <laughs> Christians that they are, and they, they get the message right or whatever. If the vast majority of those who make up white evangelicalism in America cannot repent for their role in slavery, not necessarily the indiv- the individuals who populate the Southern Baptist Convention now, obviously, mm-hmm. but as an organization to step up and say, yeah, we screwed the pooch on that one. Uh, let's, let's repent as an organization, not saying that you, Billy, actually owned people and sold people and whipped people. We're not saying that, but as an organization, we had a role in this. Let's apologize. Uh, I'm sorry, if Wells Fargo gets it better than the... <laughs> that's an issue. That's, that's an issue for me. Um, that's so, fair. So, no, I, I don't think that there's a, there's a solving for this. Uh, no, I, I think Christianity does solve for it as a as a faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, do I believe that evangelicalism is going to get there? I'm a realist. No, I don't. I think yeah. I'm in one-on-one yeah. relationships, and people are just going to have to be happy with that. But at the same time, mm-hmm. 
not be happy, not keep striving for it. Because I could be wrong. Well, and here's a thought. You can tell me you can tell me if I'm like onto something or like way off base with this, but I I feel like something as hyper individualistic as Baptist Christianity, you know, just this whole Christianity that says, well, it's all about you and Jesus and whether you've prayed the prayer and the church is nothing more than a gathering of believers and, you know, there's no hierarchy in the church. Like it's it's just this hyper individualistic approach to Christianity. Um, I don't know if that sort of faith is at all equipped to even understand something like the the concept of something like systemic oppression, systemic racism, like because it just has no category for systems. No, I, I think you're I think you're on to something there. And again, this is where uh, and this I, I will say this, though, this is not just part and parcel to um, evangelicalism. America in and of itself is a very individualistic culture. Sure. I uh, spent a few years living in Japan uh, as a son of a military man. My brother lives uh-huh. in Japan now. Um, and there's really no concept of the individual mm-hmm. in Japanese culture. They're, they're, they're starting to have more of a concept of it because they tend to be influenced by you know, how cool Western culture is, you know, like Japanese mm-hmm. and things like that. But ultimately, everything is about the unit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's an honor-shame culture. So you don't want to bring shame on not yourself, your family. Like in America, mm-hmm. you say things like, you ought to be ashamed of who? Yourself. Yourself. Right? <laughs> in, in Japan and many Asian cultures, uh, you don't want to bring shame to your family. You don't want to dishonor your family. And I think that that's actually more in keeping with uh, scripture when you think about it. Children, obey your parents. Honor your father and, and mother. Right? So mm-hmm. It's just yeah. communal understanding uh, that undergirds scripture and somehow, some way, individualism has marred the way that evangelical Christians and American Christians in general, because I'm not going to say that mainline people don't do this as well. I'm not going to be like, sure. oh, mainline Lutherans got community down pat. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't, right? Um, I, I think that Christianity still adapts to whatever container that it's in. So we're talking about the American container. American America is very, very individualistic. And so I don't know that an individualistic culture can truly understand the communal nature of scripture itself. Uh, and mm-hmm. faith. I mean, the God that Christians purport to worship is the very nature of community, right? You know, mm-hmm. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's community. And I mm-hmm. don't, I don't think that, uh, evangelicalism is equipped for it, which then, of course, it handicaps them when it comes to things like reconciliation. Um, But when we talk also about racial reconciliation, here's the thing about racial reconciliation. And you'll see this written in almost every book by a Black author within uh, trying to explain the Black experience to white evangelicals. Mm -hmm. No such thing as racial reconciliation within the church. Why? because we've never been on equal footing to begin with. Reconciliation Mm -hmm. assumes that we were equal, there was a break in relationship, and now we need to be reconciled to each other. Mm. The history of Black people in America has been one of subservience and abuse. Mm. Right? And so we're talking about, oh, we need to be racially reconciled. Like, we were never on equal footing to begin with, right? So let's start there 
Uh-huh. Before we start talking about, oh, now we're on equal footing, relationship broke, we need to come back together. We need to figure out how to fix what has been broken from the beginning. So it's less about reconciliation and more about repentance, probably. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you have an individualistic culture, people are not prepared to repent for something, quote unquote, something I didn't do. Right. I had nothing to do with that. I didn't enslave anybody. And this is the hard part about talking about, even outside of religious circles, talking about things like white privilege. Mm-hmm. And when, you, when I bring up the term white privilege, I get a lot of different responses, but they generally tend to be within the same stream of thought of, I worked hard for everything I got. I didn't have any privilege. You know, I grew up in a trailer park and I made something of myself. Fine. Look, or, or my dad went to work every day. You know, like, okay, fine. Your dad went to work every day. That's great. My dad went to work every day. So in, in that sense, we've got those things in common, really. But I'm not saying that your dad didn't go to work every day. I'm not saying that, you know, you have millions of dollars or anything like that, or that you didn't work hard for everything that you got. What I'm saying is, and what we are saying is, uh, you have privilege in in regards to things that black people don't mm-hmm. right? like my name can't be ethnic sounding or my mm-hmm. my resume is going to be at, at the bottom of of the pile um mm-hmm. uh you know i can't wear my hair naturally i think california literally today at, at, the, at the time of recording we're recording on uh december 9th right now whenever it posts it posts right but right. as of today california just passed a law saying that you cannot discriminate against natural hair. Wow. Against natural hair. And, and the mm-hmm. thing about like calling something natural hair, that's the other thing. It's like natural hair, well, everybody's hair is natural. <laughs> when you say natural hair, you know what that means, right? Yeah. Uh, so right. it's the way that black people's hair grows naturally. There are employers in the United States that could say, yeah, we don't like that. I have dreads. Thankfully, I work for a company that uh, allows them. Just the, these kinds of privileges. And I think that a lot of people look at, um, hey, you know, I worked hard for X thing. And we're not saying that you didn't work hard for X thing. Our dads could be very much alike. that They worked their asses off to give our families a chance, things like that. And that you're doing the same thing and repeating this. It's a matter of you have the ability to tap into a system that assumes that everything that you were doing is normal, whereas black yeah. people don't. Right. I'm not saying that that's your fault. I'm mm-hmm. just saying that that is the legacy you have been handed. And, and, and that's really hard for, I think, a lot of uh, white people in this country in general and white evangelicals uh, specifically, because when it comes to talking about this, forgiveness is on the table. It is on the mm-hmm. table. We are Christians. Forgiveness is what we do. Forgive it. Like, no, no, that, you're, you're still, now you're just abusing grace. You're taking the easy way out. All right. I got three final questions, um, just kind of general philosophical questions I ask all my guests. Um, long-term goal here is to hopefully kind of get at these questions of epistemology, ontology. How do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? Um, so... Calvin, what do you think identity is? Like, does everyone have an identity? Is there something essential about us? How do you know your identity? What do you think? Well, I I think going back to different issues I brought up about faith and race in this particular uh, conversation, I think this question is going to, it's going to be a cheat. It's going to be answered differently based on your experience (laughs) of the world, right? I listened to your two episodes of the show, right? 
Um, I love, mm-hmm. I, I'm halfway through. I'm sorry. I'm halfway through the second episode, but the first episode, um, the the question of identity was interesting to me uh, because you were talking one white guy to another white guy, and it for for me, I feel like okay, white people can still have multiple identities on the table, mm-hmm. but for me, being black and religious for a long while, I have these two identities in tension. And mm. I've been told, hey, your main identity is what? Follower of Jesus. Mic drop. Mic drop moment. Hey, there it is. That's, that's <laughs> what it is. You are a follower of Jesus, period, full stop. That's it. Mm. That's your identity. While simultaneously being reminded at every turn that I am black, right? When a church wanted to prove that they were about reconciliation, they could point to Calvin. <laughs> Shuck and jive, Calvin. Shuck and jive. <laughs> right? Um, and mm. and I'm, I'm hoping your laughing is like slightly uncomfortable because it's super, it, it's, it's an awkward thing, right? To be this black yeah. guy who is pointed at as proof that racial reconciliation is is happening so i i think i leaned hard into the idea that my i'm a christian first and black second but now Mm. i'll be honest if if i am to return to faith in a robust manner and that remains to be seen ultimately i think my identity is that i am black Mm. and foremost but to answer the question directly what is identity it is a thing or is an idea or a belief or a philosophy that undergirds how you move through the world. Uh, how you Sometimes it is how you see yourself, and sometimes it is how others see you. Sometimes it is a mix of both of those things. Mm-hmm. Right? So uh, I said earlier in the show, hey, you know, people were talking about, hey, you know, we're all one in Christ, but I was constantly reminded that I was black. Hmm. So it's taken a long yeah. time for me to get to the point where it makes more sense for me to identify or find my identity in my blackness before finding identity in anything else, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, second, um, what is human nature? Um, are we all innately the same somehow? Are we all different? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? Jeez, oh, man. Uh, I mean, I, and I even have the questions in front of me. That's the bad part. Like I've had all day. To- I know. It's like you knew this was coming. And- <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, what is human nature? I, I think that human nature is um, about self-preservation. And I hate giving an answer to this question and saying that because you're going to inevitably post this. I'm going to listen to it. You're going to send it <laughs> out to my friends and my family and to our network on my show. And I'm say, I wish I had answered that question differently. <laughs> right? um, but ultimately, I, 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 I guess I do in this moment at 1134 Eastern Standard Time on December 9th, my answer to the question, which is open to change because this podcast is called Changing My Mind, right? Um, <laughs> um, I, I feel like human nature is something that is constantly in flux. I think that human nature is... Ultimately, if we're talking about an ultimate reality, human nature is concerned with self-preservation, whether that be with uh, whether that be through, I don't want to go to hell, so my nature is to follow a particular religion, or human nature is 
about self-preservation in terms of being literally selfish. I want mm. to have what I want right now over and against the the lives of others. Mm-hmm. And depending on your psychological makeup, that can go any number of ways, but generally one of two ways. Like you're either really, 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 really selfish or really, 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 really giving. All right. And finally, um, what is truth? How do you know truth? Is there truth? How do you know me found truth? What do you think? That's not all. Man, you're adding stuff. That's not cool, man. Um, (laughs) Isn't that the question? Isn't that the question that Pontius Pilate asked Jesus? It is. And it's interesting that no one answers him in the passage. (laughs) Okay. So here's the clinical, here's the clinical answer. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. I believe there is an ultimate truth. And this is why I like your first guest. I can't remember his name right now. Um, your very, very first guest. Then. Film critic, right? Yeah, you're like, hey, there's yeah. got to be an, an ultimate truth, uh, you know, uh, an absolute truth. I do believe in that. You know, whether we can know that or not, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think I think you can know the Nazis were wrong. I think you absolutely know that. Um, it's just like, eh. like other, otherwise, things are just things. This is why I like C.S. Lewis so much, where he says, hey, look, the Nuremberg trials happened, and we were able to appeal to the law above the law, right? Mm. Where we mm-hmm. say to these people who were saying, oh, we were just following orders, like, look, we know you were wrong, and you know you were wrong, right? You're appealing mm. to something higher in order to say that. Otherwise, everything is just kind of a thing. Like we, we might have had to fight the Nazis, but we would have been fighting them for something arbitrary, like their eyes being you know blue and their eyes and their hair being blonde, right? That's mm-hmm. how arbitrary things are if there is no truth. So I mm-hmm. think there is ultimately a ultimate truth. I'm not as comfortable saying exactly what those things are, but I'm also not so uncomfortable to say what some of those things are, right? <laughs> and and I, I think we live in this postmodern world where people are like, oh, you know. One of my favorite things uh, is when people say, you know, there is no absolute truth. And I just say, is that true? Think, mm-hmm. Okay, cool. We'll get back to it. We'll, we'll get back to you on that. <laughs> um, uh, I think that ultimately truth is that which corresponds with reality. Um, at, as basic as a math based on a system of 10. So if I say to you, two plus two is four, you know, four plus four is eight. 5 plus 5 is 10. You know that these things correspond with reality in a system based on 10. But I also take the C.S. Lewis tack in that when it comes to the con- uh, you know, the, the concept of truth, when someone is wrong on something and does not correspond with the truth, some things are nearer the truth than others. So like if an atheist is like, hey, look, I don't believe in God. All right, cool. Well, someone who's like, hey, I believe in God, but I don't believe in the Trinity. I believe in the Father and the Son, but not the Holy Spirit. That person's closer to the truth than the atheist is. I think a lot of evangelicals would be like, no, they're absolutely the same because they're both wrong. <laughs> no, closer. Right? It's easy to have a conversation with the person who's like, I believe in God. Yeah, start there. I think it's important to, for people to believe in truth because if, if you don't, whether religious or non-religious, honestly – if there's no truth, what are we doing? How are we living? How are we moving through this world? It doesn't make sense to me that there is no truth or that truth is unknowable. It, it, like, 
none of that makes sense to me. It never has. Maybe I'm too much of a modern thinker. Maybe I've been influenced <laughs> by my evangelical apologetics training. But <laughs> that's why I'm giving the clinical answer. Truth corresponds with reality. If it does not correspond with reality, it is by definition not true. It is either wrong or it is a lie. Some people will hate me for saying that. I'm sure there are people who have philosophy majors who will hate me for that. But I believe <laughs> truth is knowable. I believe in absolute truth. Now, whether I personally know what those things are is another question. It has been a pleasure having you on the show, Calvin. It's been um, a lot of fun catching up with you. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Before we go, you got anything to plug? You want to plug your podcast one more time or anything else? Uh, yeah. So um, I do a podcast called Leading Questions with Calvin Moore because uh, I'm pretentious. <laughs> and uh, well, But I guess your name's in your podcast too. So, you know. Yeah, my, my name's right there in my, so, my title as well. True. So. On that, like, um, Hashtag branding, you know? <laughs> I, yeah, I, but I also feel like having your name in your podcast is almost like rappers saying their name a million times in a song. Like, <laughs> remember, this is Jay-Z. Um, but uh, no, I um, Leading Questions with Calvin Moore uh, started off as a program in my college called House of God, where I had different uh, Christians come on to disagree with each other. Uh, but uh, my show is purely secular at this point. We do talk about religion from time to time. But uh, like I said earlier in the show, we're talking about LGBT stuff. Uh, this next week, next week's Christmas, uh, the week after that's Christmas story, the New Year's. Then we're getting into sexual health and things like that. So we're all over the gamut. But Leading Questions with Calvin Moore, you can find us at uh, leadingquestionsnow.com. Don't read it too fast because it's Leading Questions Snow. I'm oh, sorry, Leading <laughs> Questions Snow as well. Um, but uh, leadingquestionsnow.com. I've got a couple of co-hosts who I love dearly um, on the show with me as well. We get a lot of people to come on and uh, to disagree with people across the table and disagree well. So at the end of a conversation, they might say, hey, you know what? I don't necessarily go where you go. But now I don't think you're an idiot because <laughs> right? social media doesn't work out very well. I think in your first episode, you talked about social media quite a bit, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, social media, people get behind their keyboards and they feel uh, in, in, emboldened to say things that they would never say face-to-face. -face. And so what we do <laughs> is we tend to get people face-to-face -to, -face to say, hey, look, I disagree with you on X topic, but both tend to be experts in the field of that topic. So, uh, so that's my show, Leading Questions uh, with Calvin Moore. Check us out, leadingquestionsnow.com. Um, if you have topics you want us to talk about, please email me at uh, hello at leadingquestionsnow.com. Uh, but other than that, Luke, awesome having uh -huh. you on your show. All right. Well, this has been Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. You can find me at luketharrington.com or find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington. I will see you next time. I said this in my conversation with Calvin, um, but my background is not one that I would call evangelical in the narrowest sense of the words. I'm certainly not what people think of when they say evangelical. Um, I was raised Presbyterian, have my faith 
nurtured by Episcopalians, eventually found my way to uh, high church Lutheranism. Um, Now, Presbyterianism, Lutheranism, I tend to think of those as traditions that are much older and deeper in their roots than what most people think of when you say evangelicalism. Like most people think of quote-unquote evangelicalism as something that started with the Second Great Awakening and tends to be very experiential, very individualistic, very me, Jesus, and my Bible, pray the sinner's prayer and you're good, that sort of thing. And I have kind of steadily marched away from that as I've gotten older. These days, my thinking tends to be very centered around the church, the sacraments, confession, baptism, communion. So it's not for nothing that I say I find myself nodding along a lot more when my Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican friends talk than when my more evangelical friends talk. But what I do tell people is that I was kind of raised on the fringes of evangelicalism. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about if you say purity culture. That was not my experience of Protestantism growing up. But what I have a lot of experience with is what was termed, I believe, worldview training. That was the big thing in the 80s and the 90s was we need to teach kids a biblical worldview so that they'll go out there and live differently and change the culture for Jesus. And the reality is that those of us who were raised with this worldview training have seen the exact same sort of people, and in many cases the exact same people who push this stuff, fall one by one to what you could broadly call Trumpism, which is a nice word for white identity politics. And a lot of us are still reeling from seeing that happen, you know? When you all said absolute truth was real, a lot of us thought you meant it. When you said personal morality matters, A lot of us thought you meant it. When you said, welcome the stranger, preach the good news to the poor, a lot of us thought you meant it. When you said, what would a man gain if he gained the whole world but lost his soul, a lot of us thought you meant it. When you said, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight, a lot of us thought you meant it. And it turns out you didn't. And a lot of us don't know what to make of that. Either the quote-unquote Christian worldview didn't keep you from stumbling deep into a pit, or else the Christian worldview never was your worldview. That's going to be it for this week. I want to thank Calvin for being on the show. Um, Really glad to uh, have him back in my life in whatever small way, because he is a great guy. Um, You can check out his podcast, Leading Questions with Calvin Moore, available on whatever your favorite podcast platform is. 
I want to thank Raven Creek Social Club for hosting the podcast. Do check out their other podcasts, The Commentarians and Faith and Other Oddities. And if you think of it, um, go on Amazon, look for my book. It's called Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Confused and Uncomfortable. It will be out in August from HarperCollins. It's going to be my debut with a major publisher and also my debut to nonfiction um, and humor, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, so give it a look give it a pre-order if it's the sort of thing that interests you it would make a big difference i'm sure with my publisher um, if it if they saw a lot of pre-orders if you are enjoying the podcast please take a second to give it a rating or a review on itunes that really does help get the word out you can find me at luketharrington.com or on twitter at luke t harrington i'm luke t harrington Thank you for listening to Changed My Mind, and please don't be afraid to change your mind. Mm-hmm.